Hey friends, it's Eric here. Thanks for listening to the Building Us podcast. Hey, I want to invite you to follow me on my new show, Stuff About Money They Didn't Teach You in School, where I take a deeper dive into money and financial topics. You can find it wherever you listen to your podcast, Stuff About Money They Didn't Teach You in School. I hope to see you there. And I think it's important to acknowledge, even before I get into any of that, to almost offer a disclaimer that the age of a young person returning home, the circumstances under which they find themselves needing to or wanting to come home, the age of their parents, uh, socioeconomic status, culture, all of those things are important variables. So while we might speak generally and even more specifically about some of these things, I think it's just so important to acknowledge that everybody's situation is different. And so, you know, with, with that said, you know, some of the complexities revolve around the reasons why someone might need to come welcome back to the building us podcast a show all about the power of our relationships those relationships to our family our community our money eric and to each other and everything in between a show about love and money this is building us hi i'm dr matt morris couples counselor and family therapist Joined always by my co-host and certified financial planner, Eric Garcia. Eric, we have an interesting topic today. Uh, there's a phenomenon known as uh, boomerang kids. It's uh, you, you think about a boomerang, you throw it out in the world. It sometimes, mine never do, but sometimes comes back mine and never hits you in the face. Came back. Yep. Yeah, so boomerang kids, kids coming back home. Uh, you thought you sent them out, but they, they somehow returned back home. What would it be like for you? to move back in with your parents. Yeah. I, it's speechless. Your silence says a lot. With would I bring my family with me? Would my family would, would I would I bring oh, you know, like your a whole family crew, of five your whole crew moving back in is a is another layer of challenge. Yeah, it would be disruptive. Yeah. It would be it would be terribly disruptive. I was thinking about this. My, uh, yeah, you go on vacations, right, with your family from time to time. I do, but it's seven days. It's a microcosm it's not, of being a boomerang kid. Yeah. It's seven days. It's not. It's not. You know, six months or twelve months. It, I think my wife would probably not talk to me for a little while. Maybe <laughs> stay in the, um, stay in a room. I mean, she loves my family, but you know, we could talk about that phenomenon. You know in-laws and 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 wives later but but let's talk about let's talk about boomerang kids here yeah yeah i can imagine the same thing for myself moving back in with my parents would would create a lot of it feels like a lot of challenge just to even think about it and that's that's really what we're here to talk about whoa eric you're back for those who can't see you left the recording and now are back i i just imagine that you uh, you either self-destructed or got triggered and left the recording. Are you okay? I am okay. You know, some describe New Orleans as the northernmost Caribbean port. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to attest to that, that our internet um, reliability is is probably that of a of a third world country sometimes. And um, it's not 5G. I mean, it's not, it's not 5G. 5G. Well, I don't know. 3G. It it's just not working right. Anyway, so we're talking about boomerang kids. Let's get into this, Matt. Why don't you introduce our guest for the day? Yeah, um, just in, in teeing that up a bit, uh, a study came out recently about the, the 
number of adult children moving back in with their parents is now at almost an all-time high. 52% of young adult kids living with a parent as of July 2020. So, you know, mm-hmm. smack dab in the middle of global pandemic, a majority of young adult kids ages 18 to 29, that's young adult 18 to 29, are 52% are now living with their kids. We have a guest today who is an expert in boomerang kids and the phenomena of, of living again with your parents. Um, Rob Caceres. Hey, Rob, how's it going? Great. Thank you for having me on. Take a minute and just uh, dis- introduce yourself and describe your expertise. Yeah, so my name's Rob Caceres, assistant professor at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Uh, I've done some research into boomerang parents and what it's like for them when their young adult children come back uh, to the home, either in a planned way or an unexpected way. And uh, also it's something in my clinical work that I've seen uh, my fair share of, as you acknowledge, because it's such a common phenomenon that, uh, especially within the past six to eight months, has really increased in prevalence. Yeah, I think that's the highest number since the Great Depression. So we're talking about the highest number since 19, what, the 30s? That's, that's pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Now, your research, did you do your research? Are you a boomerang kid? Are you living at home, like doing field work right now in research, or that's not how you did it? No. Uh, okay. So when I was a, a doctoral student and like the first semester comes around and they're like, you know, you really should know within the next couple of weeks what you're going to research. And I had no idea. I was just trying to keep my head above water and be a decent student. And uh, I lived on the North Shore of New Orleans. So I had an hour commute both ways, uh, you know, to the West Bank for school anywhere two to three times a week. And I would on those trips, either listen to podcasts or call family members. I remember one day, Kind of coming home from school and i would call my mom and she would complain about my uh younger sister who was finishing up her doctoral program as well who had gotten an internship in the same town my parents lived in and so she thought oh you know save money move home with my parents and so you know then i get off the phone with my mom like oh, i wonder what this is like for my sister i'd call my sister up and they would air their grievances and they would share their differing perspectives and i thought man this is a really complex relationship it's fraught with a lot of opportunities, but also, you know, kind of some areas for struggle and conflict. And I thought, you know, I wonder what it'd be like to research this. And so I kind of stumbled into it. And it was something that I really found fascinating as I engaged with and talked with parents who found themselves in the situation. Yeah, I read your research paper and, and it was, it got me thinking about some things. It is fascinating and interesting. And, you know, I was on your doctoral committee. And I only say that to say that I, I, I read your research a while back, way before this kind of current trend in boomeranging. Uh, and I remember just being fascinated with some of your findings. And we'll get into that uh, in a bit. Um, I also just want to um, um, acknowledge that we hope to include in this, in this session a bunch of like ideas and actionable steps and, and tips from all of our experience in in parents working or living with their adult kids so we'll get we'll get back into that going back to the pew research study that found in july that 52 percent of young adult kids were now living with their parents up from 47 percent in 2018 and 2019 as eric said highest number since the great depression um you know we're in the middle of the global pandemic we're in the the middle of the effect of the 
pandemic on our economy, the recession. What are some of the factors that have led these young adult uh, kids and other adult kids to move back into their parents' homes? Rob? Yeah, so you, you referenced kind of my earlier research, and I think some of those factors have dramatically shifted mm. and are not necessarily like a one-to-one comparison to what we're experiencing now, you know. What's, ha- what's happening this year is not exactly yeah. what was happening three or four or five years ago. Exactly, yeah. So now, you know, of those 18 to 29-year-olds, it's really the 18 to 24 range, I believe, that that study cites that's kind of the larger proportion. And yeah. a significant chunk of that proportion are students who found themselves in college, college closes, and now they're doing remote learning from home. So that's kind of a, a new development that was unexpected and unprecedented, but now very common. Uh, also, you know, with the downturn in the economy, much like with the Great Recession, say, 13 10-ish years ago, uh, job loss, decrease in pay, people getting furloughed, all of that economic insecurity kind of precipitating young people feeling like, hey, you know, maybe this was never on the table for me. Maybe I thought, hey, this is for for losers or for people who don't have their life together, but I never imagined that I would be here now. Mm. And man, mom and dad's home is looking pretty good right now because of that opportunity to save on income to kind of pull resources together. And I mean, frankly, to also have kind of that familial support and structure to navigate a challenging, emotional, unprecedented time. Yeah, I know if I would have moved back, uh, well, I actually lived at home when I went through college because I went um, to to Tulane here in New Orleans. Um, But yeah, man, mom's house is great. She does laundry. She cooks food for you. And, and I came from a Hispanic household, so it was even better, right? Uh, I probably didn't even have to make my bed. <laughs> well, I think that illustrates a, a really important point that in my research and in my reading, uh, those families that have a cultural component where families staying longer, like, you know, one of the things that came up in some of my interviews uh, of, you know, people in and around the New Orleans area, like Italian families, that it was socially acceptable and in fact expected that a man would stay at home almost until he got married. And so, you know, their parents love that. And then that person who benefited from that was perfectly excited to then have their, you know, Italian son come home or and, Hispanic son. Yeah. And to, to, to kind of further illustrate it, you know, you talk about in your research, like the, the different types of co-residents, I guess is the, the, the term that y'all use, right? Obviously the boomerang kid coming back, co-residing with mom and dad, but the other co-residents relationship is, is, um, uh, bringing in a parent into the household. So here we are. I grew up in a household uh, where my grandmother, when I was what in eighth, seventh or eighth grade, my grandfather passed away. Or in sixth grade, my grandfather passed away, and my grandmother lived, you know, lived with us until she uh, passed away. She lived with my parents until she passed away a few years ago. So that's again, I get maybe a cultural component. Yeah, yeah, and I think maybe a silver lining out there for those parents who find themselves with kids coming back. There's a lot of research to say that for those parents who then take in their kids, those kids are more likely to take in the parents when the mm. time comes, you know, decades down the line. So that's almost uh, an incentive to kind of pay your dues now because it will pay dividends later. Yeah, the law, the the principle of reciprocity in full effect. My my kids live with me now. I, I sure hope that I get to live with them one day and they're kind of boomerangish yesterday when they went to school and about three 30, they came back home. So yeah. there's that, uh, do, they're just do you know not the cost. 
you know the cost to raise a kid to age 18 is? No. What is it? It's like 300000 The average is $300,000 to raise a kid from birth to age 18. So like, why would I need to bring a kid back in at 20 to feel justified in them taking care of me when I'm 70 or 87? Right. I think when you're 300 grand in, you're pot committed. So it's like, you've already made that yeah, investment. Dude. Let's just yeah. see it all the way through double all down. In. I don't, yeah. I'm not walking away from this one. <laughs> so uh, we know that we're talking about two different kinds of uh, time periods in boomeranging, the current conditions that have led to boomeranging, which are not so uh, culturally specific. It seems like uh, all kinds of cultures, all kinds of people, all kinds of uh, scenarios are represented in that 52%. Uh, so it, it is shifted from your, your previous research. Um, but kind of looking at both kinds of, of boomeranging, what are some of the complexities for both the parents and the adult kids in this relationship? Yeah, and I think it's important to acknowledge, even before I get into any of that, to almost offer a disclaimer, you know, that the age of a young person returning home, the circumstances under which they find themselves needing to or wanting to come home, the age of their parents, uh, socioeconomic status, culture, all of those things are important variables. So while we might speak generally and even more specifically about some of these things, I think it's just so important to acknowledge that everybody's situation is different. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, with that said, you know, some of the complexities uh, revolve around the reasons why someone might need to come home. Uh, if a, There's a lot of recent research that's come out, uh, quantified it, uh, quantitative data saying that, you know, if a young person comes home because they've lost a job or because they've, um, you know, seen a, a market decrease in their income, that under those circumstances, their parents' mental health and well-being and just acceptance of those circumstances is marked by uh, depression. And so just the circumstances under which someone comes home can create depression and stress within the relationship of the parents amongst so wait, one that, another and amongst that, their child. That's uh, if the kid comes home due to, or the, the adult kid comes home due to financial distress, that is distressing for the parents. That, that can lead to depression. Correct, yeah. Uh, but there's a hopeful aspect of it because some research says that uh, what's well, kind of like something that you taught uh, in your class that's always stuck with me about systems. Systems are resistant to change. And oftentimes when change happens, it gets worse before it gets better. And so initially, families might experience that level of depression. But over time, they reach homeostasis. They become accustomed to this new living arrangement. And it can become positive and there can be flourishing, but there's almost got to be that recognition of it will get worse before mm. it gets better. This, this sucks. This sucks. And then it yeah. becomes more hopeful. You, you start to feel a little bit more hopeful about the situation. Yeah, this sucks, but it doesn't suck all the time. Yeah. It is the depression. So the depression in the parents, is it tied to the fact that, oh my gosh, maybe my financial house isn't in order and now I'm responsible to financially support someone else. And that's depressing to me or, oh my gosh, I can't see past a week from now and I might have to do this forever and my, my, you know, kid's going to live with me forever. Is that kind of the, the, Oh yeah. Each of those and all of the above. I think, yeah. To the extent that a parent thought, Oh, I was going to have an empty nest and now's my time. I paid my dues and now I get to do what I want to do. And that's severely compromised by having to share a home with your adult child. Uh, 
depending on what the financial structure is and the expectation for that young person to contribute, whether it's through chores or materially, uh, financially, you know, that's going to have an impact on the well-being and the mood of parents. And uh, uh, certainly in, in my research and in other research, that timeline, knowing that this isn't forever, that there's like a discrete marker that in six months or eight months, they're gone, then there is a sense of momentum and hopefulness. But at the same time, given the circumstances that we're in, very few things six months or eight months out are certain. So I'd imagine that adds a new wrinkle to what people are going through presently. So that's a complexity. It's just the effect of 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 moving home on the parents' well-being. That's that's certainly an interesting complexity. Others that you're aware of or thinking about? Yeah. So as you know, parents and young people are making that shift. You know, a breakdown in the communication or just a lack of being direct and open with one another, and maybe assuming or taking things for granted, uh, can definitely complicate things. I've mm-hmm. found. Uh, whether it's in my research or my clinical work, uh, and so just anecdotally, that to the extent that parents, young people can be direct and say, here are my expectations, here are my hopes, that there are negotiations related to where there might be differing viewpoints, just having that out in the open and establishing clear, maybe firm or flexible boundaries, all of that kind of uh, mitigates some building up of resentment or just you know, ongoing frustration. Yeah. You know, when I was in my twenties and I would go home for the weekend or for the summer or something like that, I would revert back to being a kid. I mean, that was the, it just back in my old room, you know, back in my old bed. Why not just be back in my old life? And so I'm guessing that that's a, that's a challenge for boomerang families is when the, the, the adult kid is now back to just being a kid. Yeah. And there might be that sense of you were out, you know, as I guess the kids say, adulting, and that didn't work out so well for you. And now you're back home. And there very much is that pattern of that young adult's life kind of reinforcing the mindset of the parent of like, well, you're still my kid or you're still a kid. And so that's another challenge relationally in terms of the dynamic of home life are, you know, young people who've developed a sense of autonomy, who lived independently, uh, even if it's for a semester or a year at college or, you know, many years college and a job and coming home and feeling that sense of like, well, these old family patterns and viewpoints and expectations are just so ingrained in what it means to be a family that it feels very tough on the young person to feel like they're seen as an adult, certainly not an equal adult. And so that power differential and that viewpoint can certainly be a a source of great struggle and conflict. Do you find it more difficult, like in your work, is it more difficult for the child or for the kid or for the parents or is it, or is it purely circumstantial? Yeah, I think it's circumstantial. And again, it goes back to what kind of positive momentum and progress that the parent and the young people have made. If it's just starting, I think it's not that you can quantify the level of difficulty for each, but I would say it's pretty comparable. And then as time goes on, uh, young people might be a bit more flexible and just say like, well, I'm making the best of this. And they view themselves as an adult. And it might be harder for the parents to kind of let go of that sense of, well, you're a child, you're in my house, you're in your old room. Uh, And so that over time might be more of a struggle for parents to kind of let go of that. But for the parents I've spoken to who've been able to kind of overcome that hurdle, that sense of seeing their 
child as a young adult was one of the most rewarding and fulfilling experiences or aspects of sharing that living arrangement. And, and those have said, who've been able to do that, I really enjoyed and loved my kids so much more when I saw what they could become or when I got to know them as an adult, because man, they were a pain in the butt when they lived with me the first time. And now I think they're a delight. I got to imagine too, and, and I've never lived through this. So I want to be, I want to be careful to, you know, presume what it would be like, but I would imagine if my kid's in college and they come home, to me, there's still some expectation of they're, they're still in college. They're, yes, they're an adult. Yes, they're making some decisions on their own, but still they're not earning an income that's, that could substantially support them in, in, in a family. Uh, so I would have some expectation of still being a, a, I don't know, an authority figure in some degree as a parent. But once they're graduated and maybe a little bit more autonomous and, and are pursuing work or are working, uh, I got to imagine that that's a, a shift or an inflection point in, in the relationship from parent to child. Is that something that you see? Is that, is oh, that, is that an inflection point? Ab- absolutely. And I think that goes back to communication and negotiation of expectations and establishing boundaries. You know, I, I think parents who are opening up their home have every right to say, here are the non-negotiables. Here are the things that are flexible. I think it's perfectly reasonable for a parent to say, like, I don't want you stumbling in, you know, loudly at two in the morning uh, every day. Uh, or I don't want you just leaving your dirty clothes strewn all over the house. Uh, so where there is that inflection point that parents say, like, you know, I used to cook every meal for you and do your laundry, but let me know if you're going to be home for dinner tonight or, you know, you're going to need to do your own laundry. And I think those are just simple conversations that need to be had, but it'd be very easy in the business of day-to-day life to not have them. And again, just kind of create some of that resentment and, you know, those situations that are ripe for conflict. In, in thinking about role confusion and that when an adult kid moves back home, they might be seeing themselves in a way that the parent doesn't see them, or the kid might be acting in ways that they're no longer uh, the parent may be seeing themselves in a way that is not really what the kid needs at this point. And so I, I just imagine like in the parent-child relationship over time, as it ages and develops, it would be easy for some of those roles to become confused as an adult kid moves back home. Are you, are you seeing that? Yeah, I mean, definitely in my research, that idea of those roles being muddled is something that came up a lot that... Mm-hmm. You know, parents say they're always going to be my kid, but there might be times where they act in a way that seems very mature and very responsible and in a way that I'm very proud of, like, oh, you know, that's my young adult. And other ways, you know, in the same breath or on the same day, they act incredibly juvenile and they lack personal agency or they seem incapable of keeping their room clean or just sticking to their word. And so that's kind of where some of that tension might come in within families of a young person wanting to be seen as the age they are, as you know, someone who's a mature adult, while their behavior and their interactions with their family don't necessarily necessitate uh, having earned that distinction. You know, as I read your research, I kept um, picturing myself or imagining myself having a conversation, uh, you know, 10 years from now, one of my kids coming back. And, and I kept 
saying, how would I, how would I respond? What would my reaction be? You know, and obviously everything was circumstantial, but one of the things I kept coming back to was raising kids. And I kept coming back, you know, we're talking about boomerang kids, but I kept coming back to this idea as, as parenting, right? You have kids that are under 18 or under 10. And as parents, you know, what, what's our job as parents? Is it just to like keep them alive? Um, is it to, to, that's part of it. Matt's nodding his head. Yeah. You got, you got to keep that's them alive, obviously. Yes. Or they don't but, ever get to boomerang. So that's or they it. never get to boomerang. Yeah. You, they never leave. So they, <laughs> there's an opportunity for them to come back. But like, I was thinking, you know, and this is, this is my, my wife and she's, she's a phenomenal mother. I'm going to use your word phenomenal as much as I can here. She's a phenomenal mother. And her approach to parenting is I'm, I'm training, I'm raising independent human beings, mm-hmm. human beings to be autonomous, even at, 10 or even at five or seven, there's things that they're capable of doing to participate in, in the household. So I keep thinking of like, huh, if I'm a really good parent early on, is that going to prevent my kid from coming back? But then you look at some of the stats and say, well, they're not all coming back because they're, they weren't parented. Well, there's other outside circumstances, but it seems to me that if as a parent, you're instilling certain values and obviously not all values stick with kids, but if you're instilling certain values early on, these conversations 10 years from now or 15 years from now, maybe a little bit easier to, to have. Are, are you seeing any um, evidence of that or kind of like talking to these parents with boomerang kids? What was their experience like raising the kids when they were much younger? I can't speak in great detail about some of those older factors of, you know, someone feeling like I did a great job and it was then easier to speak to my young people or my young adults about their current living circumstances. I can say that for those who internalized as parents, their young adult moving home as somehow a reflection of their failure or their falling short, it definitely made for that experience being less pleasant Mm -hmm. or kind of that there's almost like a pall or a storm cloud just following them around. Uh, but for those who viewed it as, well, this is an opportunity, and perhaps I did instill great values, and my young adult is independent and autonomous and capable of being successful as a young adult, but there are situational or societal factors bigger than what they can control for. And because of that, you know, they find themselves moving home. You know, that's more understandable, or that's uh, not internalized in a way that reflects poorly on the parent, but maybe is more indicative of larger variables at play. And I, I think, too, there are a whole host of reasons why people move home. Uh, for example, we're talking about right now under poor economic conditions. But, you know, in my older research that was conducted about, you know, four, four-ish years ago, a lot of times young adults were moving home because they didn't want to find themselves in a job that was unfulfilling because they knew that perhaps that if they really invested in this, they might not have the courage to ever find, you know, a job that was a great fit for them. So moving home and not being so tied to a job because it had a larger salary, freed them up to think like, what do I really want to do with my life? Like value, meaning, and purpose. And where could I find that? Or there were plenty of young people who move home because, you know, if I could just do this for a year, then I would have no student loans and I could have a down payment for a house. And so, it wasn't just, oh, by default, this is my last resort. It was a conscious, uh, well-reasoned decision. And, you know, a few years later, knowing kind of what happened to those young people, you know, they found themselves in a much better financial position and their parents look back on that time as 
furthering that opportunity of providing, you know, for the young people so that they would have the life that they hope they would have in their, you know, late twenties, early thirties. So I'm curious in that first scenario, right? The kid comes home, they got a good paying job and they just, it's just not what they want. So they come home. Uh, I'm curious from like a family therapy standpoint, you know, and I'm putting myself again in, in, as a parent, I'm like, man, you had a good paying job. You're paying off your, your, your college was like, get, it might not be exactly what you want, but, but maybe, and maybe this is, maybe this is a, maybe this is a, a cultural thing for me in, in my generation. It's you got a good paying job. Yeah. It might not be exactly what you want, but this might be, this might, you know, in this economy, this is, this is just, you know, take it right. Stop complaining. You might not get what you really want, you know, save up live really frugally, save up all that money, then maybe you can pursue something else. How do you balance that? Like, that's a real hard conversation to have because you don't want to like stymie someone's, um, you know, passion. Like I really want to do this. And, and I've got friends and, um, clients who've, who've given up big paying jobs to do things that they're more passionate about and they don't make a ton of money, but they're happy. So I get that. But how do you like from, from this boomerang kid standpoint, kids coming home because they walked away from a, a good paying job and now, you know, they're not willing to, to, to take a job unless it's what they really want. Yeah, that's such a, a huge question. I think the answer will be so different for each young person and maybe the culture expectations of the parents. I don't know. What, one of the things I've seen kind of consistently in my clinical work right now is this has been a time for people to take stock of how things were going in their life and to say, you know, how would I want things to go? or if I could have done things differently, or what can I still do differently now? And people are, are open to making radical changes because maybe there were those who, you know, quote unquote, played it safe or took the more traditional path and still found themselves unemployed or, you know, their investments, um, you know, taking a hit for a time or the timeline that they'd sketched out for their future of financial stability and freedom and independence just not even being close. And so I've just seen in my clinical work, maybe independent of working with parents or uh, boomerang children or boomerang children themselves, just more of an openness to take risks and um, to say like, what's really important to me, what's meaningful and how can I pursue that? Independent of finances really beyond what would be that necessary standard of living. Yeah, that's tough because sometimes I'm I'm faced with that when I talk to clients and, and, you know, I'm, I'm big on aligning what you do with your money with, with your values And and oftentimes people are doing things that, that don't align really with what they really like or what they care about. And it could be a spending thing, maybe not necessarily a career thing, but we're talking about like career. We're talking about like, I mean, th- th- that's a, it's a risk. So it's, it's on one hand, the, the prudent planner in me says, Hey, you got a good paying job. You're funding what you need to fund. Why would you walk away from that? Then the entrepreneur in me says, "Man, what 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 are you passionate about? Go 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 find that." And that that's tough sometimes, and it's tough to to advise. Um, and I think this is something that I've learned from from Matt and hanging out with counselors is the the process of counseling or the process of planning that the the talking through and considering different opportunities is really where the work's done, not what you ultimately do or the ultimate decision. It's solidifying or galvanizing that that direction that you want to go. Yeah, let, let let's talk about it as a family. I would say let's talk about it. I've I've had a number of sessions over the years that have kind of been almost one off or two session, you know, consultations where 
I've met with the parents and the adult kid, and we've talked through the concerns or the issues or the ideas, the dreams, the hopes, the timeline. We've talked through it all um, as a way to make the decision moving forward. Um, and those aren't always uh, ongoing therapy cases. I'm not even sure they're exactly therapy, It's a pro- but it is a therapeutic process of talking through the concerns at this phase in the li- at this phase of life. And those are always interesting cases to me. Another example of that would be a couple who are about to get married, pulling in some of their parents to talk about some of the new expectations, the new routine, the new hopes. Um, and so I think, I think counseling can, can play kind of this uh, important consultation role um, or facilitation role in helping families talk through these next phase of life issues. And that certainly can apply to a kid boomeranging home. Let's meet, let's meet with this, this uh, counselor person, this mediator person, and let's talk through some of these ideas. Yeah. Let's talk through the, the, um, the financial components of it. Let's, let's put a plan in place, right? I mean, Rob, you talked about it's kind of hard in this environment to really predict six months, 12 months, but that, any any type of planning we do, there's always variables that we can't account for, but we have a roadmap, we have a direction, and, and to the best you can, you stick to it, and, and you be flexible and, and, and change as, as as necessary. But um, I think Matt, that's a really good point, and I don't think a lot of people see, um, you know, traditionally financial advisors like myself, you come to us when you want investment advice or when you want to open up a retirement account. Um, but not necessarily, uh, people haven't necessarily seen us as, hey, I got a big financial decision to make. I don't need investment advice. I don't need any of this. I just need to think clearly on yeah. what would make a good decision based I off my circumstances. I need to talk through this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I think um, financial folks like yourself, uh, family therapy, counseling people like myself and Rob and others, can certainly play this advising role at this part. And just think, listening to our conversation and thinking about the benefits of boomeranging, uh, you know, it is, it is financially oftentimes more economical to live together. And so there's a real uh, advantage to, to moving home and living together. And so how do we maximize that financial benefit while also clarifying roles while also sort of maximizing our own mental health and 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 hopes and dreams for the next phase of life, that seems like those would be great discussions with a with a professional. Yeah, and like so many of the discussions that require a professional, they're not easy ones to have um, because I guess taking a longer view of it, when I look at the findings from my research, which kind of deviates from a lot of the other findings that, you know, skewed very negative, that mine were predominantly positive. Kind of one of the things that I I think might be the case for that is uh, very few of those parents were still living with their young person. They had the benefit of looking back on that time and with time and perspective, uh, kind of thinking, oh, you know, here are all the great things that kind of the great things stayed longer with them than maybe the daily grind. Whereas like in the moment of going through that tough, turbulent, maybe unexpected time, it, it feels like a grind. And so I think being able to see it as an opportunity, an opportunity to share resources during a time where resources might feel scarce, to give your young person a chance to get a stable footing and a clear vision of what are some viable paths that might be both fulfilling, but perhaps 
lucrative. And, um, you know, just offering that support in a way that's not just like, oh, I wish it wasn't this way or this is hard. But, you know, in the day and today, like where are the opportunities to connect? Where are the opportunities, you know, Eric, you mentioned like instilling values and, and raising up, you know, strong, independent, autonomous young people. Where are ways where maybe that feels a bit unfinished and in a way that might be more consultation or collaboration rather than strict uh, authoritative parenting, you know, offering that influence, that guidance, almost as a form of mentorship. And so I think there are a lot of relational opportunities, a lot of financial considerations that are very hopeful, that are ripe for uh, connecting uh, as a family, as a couple, you know, with your children. And, uh, and that can be exciting that almost to say, you know, as a family, when we get through this, because we will, and this isn't forever, what would we want to look back on this time and say, like, we were prouder, or that we especially enjoyed, or that, you know, we could say our benchmarks of, you know, we really made the most of this time. And even though it was hard, it was generative, and it was fruitful, and it was beneficial. Yeah, I like how you said, when we get through this, I think it's so important to cast that vision. Um, because I, I got to imagine, in you know, in some cases, the the kid coming home could feel like I fail. I couldn't do it, right? So there is a sense of of I can't do it. But but as a parent, as a leader, you know, we're casting a positive vision. We're going to get through this. What do we want it look like? What do we want it to look like on the other side? I think is is a big thing. Mm. I was, you know, I've had some conversations with clients, and in some situations, it's a kid having to move back. Um, in some situations, the clients are retired or or they're still working. And one, one very kind of strong motivation is obviously, yeah, I love my kid, but it's guilt. Like, like, how can I not help my kid if I don't help my kid? In some cases, it's some cases it's probably unhealthy, not, not their guilt, but the kid moving back. Um, but how often do you see, or do you see that sense of like obligatory, you know, I've got to, you know, or, 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 you know, we said three months and like, they're still playing video games and we're six months into it. I'm not picking on video games. I still play Nintendo in my house uh, for the record. <laughs> Old school. In my house. That's right. Um, but do you, do you see that play? Like I can't really, you know, put my foot down because I feel guilty or I, how can I do that to my kid? Yeah. I, I think it's harder to walk that back. I think, you know, as, as counselors, we have something called informed consent where it's like, from the moment we begin working together, there's like the expectations, the scope of what we can do, the limits of our confidentiality, it's all on the table. And I almost think like that provides by analogy, like a good roadmap for parents. You know, you might feel that there's a sense of guilt, like, you know, I can't not help my kid, but how much is helping and how much of going beyond what's truly helpful is just enabling and it's more detrimental than beneficial. And so to be able to kind of prior to your young person moving back, you know, if that means financial planning, because that's inevitability, you just know your kid or, you know, the uncertainty of the future, then that might help. Okay. We have X amount of money that we can contribute toward supporting this young person financially, and they're going to have to figure out the rest or even just the duration of time. You know, you have six months. You know, at two months, we're going to evaluate where we're at at four months and coming up with a game plan of how do we know that you're on the path to this truly being temporary and also being beneficial. And so 
really being able to kind of express that from the beginning, because if that's something where the boundaries are, are really poor and parents are talking a good game and the young person knows that they can just kind of be persistent and relentless and the parents will make those concessions, then yeah, that, that pattern's never going to be disrupted. So really being clear in those expectations, I think is so important. Man, that demands a certain level of health on the parents' part, right? That, mm. that, you know, it's just sitting down, forget the emotional side of the behavioral side, the financial side to sit down and say, okay, we're going to put together this budget. I'm sitting here thinking like, oh my gosh, like adults are struggling with that much less, you know, their adults are struggling with it. Their boomerang kid may be struggling with it and they're going to sit down. And I remember having a client meeting once, and this was not a boomerang kid. It was a teenager. The parents wanted to teach the teenager about healthy money habits. And I'm sitting here thinking, how about you start by modeling healthy habits? Hmm. Um, I didn't say that, but that, that was my thought. So, um, you, you sit in here as, as parents or a parent of a boomerang child, there's this level of, I think, health that some of these conversations demand that some of them might not be there. You know, and Eric, you know, you started all of the, you started this question about, uh, a parent feeling guilty and inviting their kid back home, you know? Parent, just as a general rule, parenting out of guilt is generally uh, not the not the best place to start. If you're for all of us, if we're parenting out of guilt, it's problematic. Generally speaking, anyway, and so guilt is a very powerful motivator. It gets us to change our our mind, change our behavior, change our values, even. Uh, and and so, recognizing how powerful guilt is, if you're parenting out of guilt, it's almost always problematic. Yeah, just that wanna, mindset of I I could have done more, I should have done more, now I need to do more. I mean, it could be a very common pattern. And that's such like black and white thinking that's rarely the solution. That now if I'm doing more, I'm loving more, I'm giving more, and that's beneficial. Where you know, as y'all have remarked about being a parent, part of the challenge of that is sometimes not doing, you know, allowing for struggle or scaling back and not being so directive or controlling and um, yeah, parenting from a place of guilt or a sense of, I feel like things are better because I can sense I am actively doing more, doesn't necessarily correlate with things actually being better. And, and that being said, th these are very difficult decisions to figure out for parents. Um, it, it, it sometimes is very difficult to know, Am I? is this another version of enabling or is this that leg up that's really going to propel them forward into that next uh, you know, success it's sometimes that's really difficult to know. Change comes from all different locations and it's hard to predict when it's going to happen. Rob, I want to go back to, um, before we move on, I want to go back to, to your research for a minute. I remember, uh, you writing, um, you know, writing your dissertation process. And eventually I received one day your results section. And, uh, I was in my office at, at Holy Cross and, uh, reading your results section. I remember it because, I think I'd had clients recently, parents who had adult, adult kids and in sessions, them complaining about their adult kids, you know, adult kids can sometimes be really crappy roommates. And so, uh, just hearing that in session, when I got your results section, I, I thought I would read more about crappy roommates. I thought that's essentially what the results were going to say. And that's not what they said at all. Your results section for the, from the parents that you interviewed found that 
they loved it. They loved the time with their kids and they, they really uh, reveled in it and missed it to some extent and enjoyed seeing their kids as adults, enjoyed um, seeing what they were up to kind of on a day-to-day basis, enjoyed seeing like um, just having their energy around the house again, all of that. And, and that was a really uh, surprising uh, finding for me in reading your work. And I thought that was such a, such a, um, an unexpected, uh, kind of joy for me as a therapist to read that, man, this goes well sometimes and people really benefit from this. Yeah. And I think about, you know, one of those major benefits just being additional time to spend together and additional opportunities to connect and to learn more about one another and, and to express, how you know each individual within that family is growing and maturing and progressing, and how now during a time where people feel perhaps more disconnected and more isolated and more alone, it might feel you know initially that it's a nuisance to have your adult child move back in within you, move back in with you, but to really have that proximity and to feel like you know so many people wish that they could see their children more frequently, and now I get to see them every day and just having that mindset of of reframing rather than like oh i wish they weren't here and this is an idea like you know what a blessing do the kids report the same thing <laughs> what a blessing. yeah sure sure yeah um it, it runs the gamut and again i think i can't help but remember back to a quote that you used to have taped on your door dr morris i'm not sure if it's still there we live through our stories mm-hmm. and you know, the things that we say to ourselves about our circumstances, about our relationships, about where we're at relative to where we'd like to be. I mean, that really can energize and empower, or it can just be soul crushing. You know, for yeah. us to say, like, you know, my kid's a failure because they're 24 and they still live at home, or, you know, what a blessing. I get to see my 24 year old child every day. Most of my friends like are lucky to get a text from them you know, once a week or a FaceTime once a month, you know, let me treasure this time. It may not be under ideal circumstances, but how can I make the best of this? And so definitely, you know, being able to the research and, you know, just recently newspaper publications say, you know, relationally, this is challenging. Many parents are thinking of this as, you know, something that's detrimental or something that's a nuisance that's fertile for breeding resentment. What a great opportunity to say, like, now might be a time to see a couples counselor or a family counselor. Forbes recently released an article that, you know, gave like six or seven recommendations for how individuals can think about their finances, communicate with their finances and seek out a financial advisor so that they're in a position where these decisions are hard. They are fraught with emotion. But how can you sort through this in a way that helps you to kind of deal with emotions, but also come up with a practical game plan. Yeah. I think, um, that's good about the emotional part because I think decisions in general made emotionally oftentimes are, are not the best decision, especially financial decisions. Uh, so I imagine relational decisions as well, um, that aren't made with, with some, some form of objectivity, uh, in mind. So having that, having that, that outside objector, the financial planner or the family therapist, um, is often incredibly helpful, even if it's to affirm or confirm what what we may be thinking. Um, that in of itself gives confidence to move forward without second guessing or or the constant um, questioning, because that won't create a good situation 
um, either. So in thinking about uh, adult kids moving home, living at, living with parents again, thinking about that relationship uh, being, being as smooth as possible, as beneficial as possible, and, and as economical as possible. Eric, what are some of the, the financial considerations that, that parents should be, be thinking about? Well, that's a good question. So I, I would take a step back prior to even the, the a boomerang kid coming back and, and just say in general, in, in financial planning, we obviously plan for emergencies, right? Something might happen and you know the, the AC goes out, we need money on the side. But we also talk about shock expenses, some expenses that are that are unexpected, that are bigger. And when you plan, it's really difficult to plan around these types of, of events because you just don't, you, you don't know because the the planning options are endless if we sit sit around and talk about everything we can plan for. So I would first I would first take a step back and say you should have um, margin built into your financial plan, right? If you are if you are spending every dollar you make to support your lifestyle, there's I mean you really don't have any you don't have a lot of options to deal with these shock type events that happen. And, and it could, it maybe it might not be a shock event if a kid moves back because you might make enough money to be able to cash flow this. It might not be an economic situation, just more of a, of an inconvenience or just more, they need a place to stay. But I, I would say number one is you can't plan for this type of stuff. So it's always a good idea to have margin built into your finances. Um, if you do find yourself in this, in this um, situation, I'm a big fan and we, we kind of covered this is set some expectations. I mean, I don't think it needs to be, I'm the parent, you're the child, and you're going to do what I want you to do, but set some expectations. I mean, if they're still earning an income, I'm a big fan. I like the idea of forcing them to pay some type of rent, even if it's a, a modified amount. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm picturing myself in this situation. So my kid moves back, I'm going to charge him rent. I'm not going to spend it. I'll probably give it to him when they move out if they need it to cover a down payment or something. But I think that that we can't feel, again, circumstances, depending on the circumstances, the sense of, no, I want to continue to instill certain um, types of, of values and financial values that th- the reality is wherever you, w- when you do leave, you're going to have rent to pay. So I think- Have sit, some skin in the game too. Have- yeah. So sit down and look at rent, look at cost of food, look at cost of in- entertainment, look at some type of forced savings, look at some type of of contribution to the house. You know, you hate to call it chores because that, that seems so juvenile, like your kids do chores, but but contribution to the house. I mean, you're living here. There's Sh- shared living expenses though, like roommates share living expenses. That's not unusual. Yeah. I think I think having those conversations and setting some type of expectation is important. I don't think it's this is what you do. Rob, you talked about circumstances and 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 whatnot. Uh, people will ask me, hey, um, so I'm thinking about doing this financially. Like, what do you think? Is this a good idea? I'm like, I mean, it depends. Like, what are the circumstances? Do you have debt? Do you have savings? Do you have an emergency fund? Um, it, it really all depends. So I think that in this situation, what someone can do, it really depends. But I'm going to come back to this idea of building in um, financial margin into your life is always a good idea because it's going to allow you to react and be more flexible to these types of to these types of um, situations. I do have some ideas for like strong, strong, strong. I'm not going to say do not because that, that seems so definitive, but maybe some strong, um, really, really, really consider every other option before you do this is I would not 
tap into any retirement funds to fund a boomerang child. Um, because it may be like take, take money out of an IRA or 401k or something. You can't ever get that back. Um, and again, circumstances will dictate this, but you're, you're robbing, you're robbing yourself of future things that you put away. Now you can say it's an investment in my kid and they're going to become a doctor and they're going to replace it. Sure. Um, circumstances. Second, I would, I would not go into debt to support a boomerang child that comes home. I would sacrifice my lifestyle and in a very intentional way, let this child know not, not to make them feel guilty, but Hey, this is, this is the reality of, of the situation. Like we can't do the things that we used to do because we're having to, um, pay your student loan debt because, because you don't have a job right now. Um, so those are so two kind of things. Floating a kid, floating a boomerang kid's lifestyle is not a good investment in which you should borrow money. No. Yeah. No. If they're in school and they're pursuing an education, th- that's a different story, but I'm talking about like, supporting a lifestyle where, where they're not contributing and, and I'm having to go into debt to do it. And I'm creating a bigger problem for myself. Again, circumstances, if you have income, you still don't want to enable. We talked about that earlier. How do you, you know, you don't want to, to, um, enable, but that's kind of how I would look at it. Something else I would say, and this goes back to something I said earlier about raising, um, kids. And I had this conversation with, with someone this morning at the gym, as a matter of fact, and the idea was we can teach our kids about money, but at the end of the day, uh, they're going to, re- they're going to remember what they saw. The behavior that we modeled is more likely the behaviors that they're going to pick up. If they find themselves in this deci- in this position because of poor financial decisions and you, you do some self-reflection, you realize like, wait a minute, they kind of learned this from me. I think this might be a good opportunity for some type of reconciliation with your own behaviors and and probably a good idea with a therapist present, but to say, Hey, you know what? I didn't model good behavior to you. And you, we find ourselves in this situation. And I think this is an opportunity for us to both learn, um, some good, um, some good, you know, habits or behaviors around our money. Uh, so I think there's a lot there, but it comes back to circumstances will dictate, um, a path forward on the financial side. If, if a kid, uh, adult kid is out of work, like is happening uh, in many cases right now with this younger adult crowd, they're definitely overrepresented in the underemployment crowd. If they don't have an income in, in what other substantial and significant ways could they contribute to the household that would be meaningful to the, to the home? I mean, Robert, Eric, either one. Rob, what do you think? Yeah, I think that might just look like, you know, you, you said, Eric, chores, and for lack of a better word, another way of putting that might just be like shared responsibility, that everyone has skin in the game and everyone's trying to make a meaningful contribution. And so that may look like one or both of the parents work. And then the young adult does what traditionally might be considered chores. So yard work, cleaning the house, doing the laundry. Uh, maybe some of those chores are just being able to give an account of, you know, X number of hours today, I was proactively looking for a job, or I have yet to apply for, you know, unemployment relief. 
And so, you know, I took care of some of those logistical things right now, or maybe it's not even something that's contributing materially, but an expectation of, you know, once a month, we're going to sit down as a family and we're going to talk about finances. Eric, you acknowledge that modeling is so crucial for, you know, those lessons that a young person will then carry into their adult uh, financial planning and financial success or lack of. And one of the things I encounter so frequently in a lot of the couples I work with is that the thought of having a conversation about finances, that muscle memory, that knee-jerk reaction is, this is inviting conflict. This is inviting something that's uncomfortable and that um, inevitably this will be a painful conversation. And more often than not, that's rooted in what they saw in their parents or, you know, past experiences not really rooted in the present, you know, relational dynamic that they have with their partner. And I think that's a valuable opportunity if it hasn't previously been modeled for a family to sit down and talk about tough issues, but to do it in a way that's mature and respectful so that that young person not only is getting that financial assistance to be stable now, but are building those mindsets that will help them to be independently successful later down the line. I just think that's a great opportunity that takes a proactive mindset rather than a reactive mindset. And just to kind of reinforce what was said by both of you about having skin in the game and making some type of contribution. You know, for us counselors, you know, as much as I consider myself to be an altruistic person, and my goal one day would be to be financially independent so that I could just give free counseling to people. The research says that uh, people get more out of counseling when they pay something. Mm -hmm. And so again, whether it's monetarily and you eventually unbeknownst to that young person, give that money back to them when they leave, that's probably going to increase their likelihood of seeing this as something that they're taking an active role in rather than something that I'm just going to passively you know, bide my time and get through and find myself in the same position six months later. Or to be able to make that contribution of chores or shared responsibility. Again, that active participation will probably yield a better outcome because you know, there's a willing engagement instead of just like a, a, a passive looking on. Yeah, I think you said something there that, that, that stuck with me. I think there's two components of this. One is some contributory component where you're contributing something. But the other, the other component is that you're advancing towards something, towards a job, towards um, more autonomy. Um, and I think those go hand in hand. I just think from a mental health standpoint too, whether it's my own life or the lives of my clients, when someone has goals, when some someone has something that's on the horizon that they're working toward, that feels uh, intentional, purposeful, I mean, that contributes to a sense of agency, a sense of self-esteem. And those are things that when young people, when families can come together, and again, going back to like the stories we tell ourselves, when we could say like, okay, there are some problems, you know, this situation or one another, like that's not the problem, but like the, we, we're going to collaborate together to work towards some larger goal or overcome, you know, some problem collectively. Again, that's going to help with some of that self-esteem of not, I'm a failure because I'm here, but it's no, I'm supported. We're together and we're moving towards something. Whatever that is that's been identified, I think will help with some of that momentum and increase the likelihood that goals and progress will be achieved. Yeah, that's good. Matt, what are your thoughts? 
I I have a few thoughts about this, and and it comes from clinical experience of working with parents and adult kids. It's it's been kind of a niche uh, aspect of family counseling that I've done over the years. Um, you know, a, a house runs um, based on sort of patterns and processes that people in the home are used to. And so when you introduce a new person into the home, in this case, a boomerang kid, an adult kid, they don't always know the patterns or the processes. And, and so it's an opportunity for the home itself to think about how do we do things? Why do we do things the way that we do them? There's a new person in, in town. Can they, how can they contribute? So it's a great opportunity for the for the, the, the group of adults to sit down and say, here's how we typically do things. Is that how we want to do them? How can you contribute to that? And let's come up with some new ideas about how to make this house run uh, in, in a way that's enjoyable for everybody. Houses take a lot of, homes take a lot of work to run. And so it's, it's an opportunity for the whole group to, to think about how they can contribute. But it, it's a mistake to think that the adult kid will just find their spot or know how the house runs or know the expectation. And so those things do have to be communicated like hiring a new employee. They, they need an orientation to how the home runs. Um, and I think if you depersonalize it a little bit and, and it's not necessarily, don't think about it as just my home, just our kid. Uh, but think about it as this is a, a place that people live. We all live together Let's think about how to make it run in a way that is fulfilling for for all of us. I think that's helpful. I think that this is a little bit more personal, but, um, you know, as a parent, I, w- I do want to raise adults that are good roommates for somebody one day, <laughs> their spouse, their kids, uh, their literal roommates. And if they move back home and they're not great roommates, I think as an, a parent, I can spend some time reflecting on how did that happen? What, what did I enable too long in, in childhood or adolescence that now we're sort of reaping the unintended consequences of? I, and I don't have to beat myself up about that, but I don't have to beat my kid up about that either. I can just reflect on how did we get here? What, what should we have been doing differently then? Now let's talk about it, maybe even with a therapist, and let's sort of game plan some new strategies. Third, I think that if as a parent, I'm supporting my adult kid financially, I need to really reflect upon what strings are attached to that money emotionally with my own expectations. Am I, am I, is this, am I really giving them money or am I really trying to direct them in some path? I need to think about, um, the, and be upfront with myself and my kid about the strings attached to any financial support. Um, I think that that's important. And then uh, finally, and I've just kind of learned this from watching parents of adult kids over the years, um, you know, adult children want their parents' advice about a lot of things. They want that mentoring. They want that coaching, but they don't want it all the time. And they only really want it when it's solicited. Uh, unsolicited advice generally is not all that effective or helpful, or it's not usually all that connective. It usually unsolicited advice tends to come across as complaining or ranting, and it, it's typically disconnective of the relationship. And so that's really hard for adult parents. They, they can see 
how their kid is misstepping. They can see down the road a little further. They could, they want to give their kid advice, but in doing so, they might injure the relationship. And so that's, that's hard for adult parents, but just for all of you out there, just remember that uh, they want your advice when they ask for it. So, you know, those are some, um, I would say, more therapeutic ideas I have about this really interesting, complex, beneficial relationship of the uh, boomerang kid. Yeah, this is um, this has been fascinating for me because in the financial space, a lot of the um, a lot of the material that we get or the training that we get deals with planning for uh, people as they age or what's called the sandwich generation. Maybe you heard it. It's, it's the, the, the people who have aging parents and they're raising young kids and they're, they're financially responsible for both of them. You never hear, or I've never really heard any, any conversation about this boomerang kid, this concept, this phenomenon. And from a financial standpoint, how do you plan around it? And maybe because it's not something that you can, there's no products around it to plan. There's no, you know, it's, it's not a, it's one of those events that's how, how do you really plan for it? Um, other than some of the things that, that, you know, I, I mentioned earlier. So this is, this has been great, Rob, to have you on and, and talk about this, particularly as I don't think this is going to end soon where I think we're going to continue to see this phenomenon for, for the next, I don't know, several years for sure. Um, especially with, with the economy and, and jobs, that's a big thing, but I, I do one thing as I was reflecting on this, I've got a, a friend of mine who's a business mentor and he always says, and this, this struck me in light of, of this boomerang kid, especially, especially with the kids who may be looking for that perfect job or have these high expectations of what they should make. And they're not going to take the job unless they make it. He said that he rarely will hire college graduates because they have such high expectations and they're not willing to work hard because I don't have a problem paying someone a lot of money. But every college graduate that I've that I've hired, he he said every, but this is he didn't mean every. But every college graduate that I've hired, that they, they walk in and they don't work as hard as someone who's got a high school degree and is just willing to to work, um, and to build something. So I think kind of one takeaways I was reading this, you know, if you're a boomerang kid listening to this, sometimes sometimes you just go out there and work hard and outwork somebody, and and again that might not be the circumstance that puts you there. But I think that sometimes it, that's what it takes is um, just to get out there, put yourself. I've heard of people who will go work for free and work their way into a job um, just recently as well. I mean, it's, it's fascinating and it's, it's kind of inspiring to hear um, these stories. So I would say just kind of keep showing up and, and, and grinding away. But man, this has been great, Robert. Um, appreciate your time. Any closing thoughts? Oh, no, you just dropped the mic right there. Awesome. Matt. Hustle. Hustle. Grind. Hustle. Stay on your grind. Yeah. Get on your grizzy. Uh, Matt, any closing thoughts? Well, at something that I heard Rob say offline at the beginning, uh, this is a, this can be a real opportunity for families to um, experience one another in a, in a new and different way. And, and in that way, it's kind of interesting, uh, expire, inspiring, almost said expiring. That's different. Uh, inspiring to think about all the families who for Thanksgiving this year, it'll be different for Christmas this year. It'll be different for the holidays. It's going to be a new experience. And, and I, I, I hope that they embrace that uh, this, this 
period of their life can be um, can be really, really enjoyable and meaningful. Yeah. You know, something that Matt and I often talk about is in both of our businesses, we talk about the value of relationships and how important relationships are, uh, which is one of the reasons that brought us together as we were, as we started doing this work of building us. Um, and you will never go wrong when you take time to invest in your relationships. Dr. Matt Morris maintains an active private practice for couples and families in the greater New Orleans area. To learn more about his work, visit drmattmorris.com. Eric Garcia can be found online at plan-wisely.com. His branch office is located in New Orleans, Louisiana. The branch phone number is 504-218-5479. Securities offered through Royal Alliance Associates Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through New Century Financial Group, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Insurance services offered through Garcia Financial Group, LLC. Entities listed are not affiliated. 